Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. And we're out of CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto. Great station, great people, all year round, all hours of the day. And we're also on very much appreciated radio, community radio stations elsewhere in the country and podcast websites. And I'm David Franklin Erwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian Erwin Hostetter. And I'm Lauren. If you don't remember my last name by now, you haven't been paying attention and I'm not going to tell you. No, I'm kidding. My name is Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour. Thanks so much for joining for another episode of The Green Majority. Not sure where that attitude came from. Switchblades are out already. And uh, if you want to send some spam email to Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour, <laughs> write down that email. Yahoo.ca. We have uh, a bunch of climate news. And then Stefan's going to interview Gordon Laxer, who is a researcher, professional policy dude out of the University of Alberta. Yes. Very knowledgeable individual. And he's written a report about foreign funding of Canadian Canada's oil industry. This was a response to, yes, to the Allen Inquiry. The Alberta government spent millions of dollars to prove that environmental groups are funded by foreign interests trying to destroy the Canada's oil industry. And now Mr. Laxer has written a report saying that, in fact, the Canadian oil industry is foreign funded. Foreign owned. Owned. He actually mentioned in the interview that apparently they spent more money on the report than the amount of money that foreign donors gave to the environmentalists that they were looking into. Spending that cash. But to start us off, Stefan wanted to say, uh, recycle some old notions about COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> Before we were recording, Lauren and I were talking about how the parallels between COVID and climate change. And for me specifically, the way that while technology is and will be very important, Ultimately, it's our commitment to community that will determine just how devastating the impacts are. And interestingly, I think you can see this in both an adaptation and a mitigation perspective. For adaptation, when governments failed during COVID, much more hyperlocal groups sort of came together to really work on these types of things and really protect those people around them. And you see this as well when natural disaster hits. You know, the first things you often see, while yes, the government is there, but but even before them, more often than not, is the community of people who are there, who know where their neighbors are, who are able to sort of, you know, have a boat or a, or a barbecue or anything you know, to come out and actually sort of help protect and, and bring their neighbors back together and support them. Here in the city of Toronto, there's an organization called CREW, which is about which stands for Community Resilience to Extreme Weather. And they are doing some incredible work, really some of the only work I've seen, about how to prepare people, say, in big high-rises for when the power goes out. You know, how do you keep people supported during these during these types of you know, extreme weather? And one of the things that they sort of put forward is that community ends up being super important. But so does training and understanding the community actually knowing how to make this work. That's the adaptation side. But the mitigation side, I think, is just as strong. You know, with COVID, we got the thing that was supposed to free us from a nightmare. Like, can you imagine if there was a vaccine for climate change? If there was a way that you would just have one technology that would solve, you know, a vast percentage of our problems? I'm sure everyone would honestly probably say, oh, great, that means we'd solve climate change. It turns out, no. If we all thought that one, that if, that if the world has had one easy answer to solve a huge problem that sol- impacts everyone, COVID has proven that we apparently would not use this effectively. 
our commitment to maintaining our broken system and protecting the profits of particular companies has allowed COVID to spiral out of control. You know, here in Ontario, the Omicron variant is what is causing the spike that we're about to see, and which will, in some ways, you know, sweep over us over the next few next few weeks and months. And had the world actually committed to vaccine equity and removing these patents and letting people across the world make these vaccines, there is a distinct and very likely chance that we would not be experiencing what we're experiencing today. And yet, God forbid, we don't let the, the pharmaceutical companies make billions of dollars off what was a publicly funded vaccine. Commitment and care for each other will be the only answer for both of these issues. What we've seen is here is that rich countries are, are refusing to open vaccine patents, and they still won't provide funding for the just transition uh, in regards to climate change, ultimately dooming us all with their selfish greed, which is ironic for those of us who come from a Christian tradition, but let's just hope the Ooh. three ghosts come to the oil execs and pharma bros soon. I was having a conversation with my partner because um, we were discussing vaccine hesitancy uh, because it's a lot of us are having these conversations with, with family members and loved ones. And my partner was really, he can understand the logic behind somebody who's vaccine, vaccine hesitant and doesn't believe that COVID is an issue, believes that COVID is a, is a hoax, is, is whatever. What he struggles with is the concept that somebody is vaccine hesitant, but does believe that, that COVID is an issue and, and is afraid of catching the virus and contracting it. And I, on the other hand, immediately recognized it and clocked it and understood how that can exist because it's a kind of cognitive dissonance that exists and that we deal with with climate all the time, because there's a vast majority of, at least in Canada, of the population who agrees that climate change is an issue to a certain degree. And yet at the same time, there's a whole lot of folks that are still unwilling to do what is necessary from a financial standpoint, from a political standpoint, to really enact the change that we need to see. And obviously that's shifting. We're seeing more and more that when polled, people who live in Canada are, are willing to make those kinds of shifts and um, in some cases sacrifices and, and, and make those trade-offs and, and make those investments in, in sort of our future and in the long term. But, um, but for a long time, we weren't. And for a long time, there was the argument that, oh, well, I don't want to sacrifice like my economic well-being for the quote unquote environmental well-being, which is, is a silly notion. But there, there's some learning that can be done there about how we operate as human beings and how we operate as a society. And I haven't like fully figured out exactly what those teachings are, but just sort of clocking that there are similarities in our behavior there as well. I'm going to mention the uh, week of December 20th. So that's next week. The Unistoten Solidarity Brigade, which is in Wet'suwet'en, they're calling for a week of action against banks and investors of the Coastal GasLink pipeline. And they write, uh, Wet'suwet'en people are being removed at gunpoint from their land, while major banks like RBC and Chase and private equity giant KKR are bankrolling the Coastal GasLink pipeline at the center of the militarized raids. These corporate giants have ignored countless requests to meet with communities impacted by the fossil fuel projects that the company is funding. We're calling on them to defund Coastal GasLink. And they're targeting RBC. They also mentioned TD Scotia and CIBC. Their investor target is AIMCO. Uh, and in the U.S., Chase is their key target, but they also list Bank of America, City, and Truist. And their investor target is KKR. 
So these are the financial institutions they're going after. They have an action map. They have a toolkit. So you can just check out Unistoten Solidarity Brigade. If you look at the hashtag defund coastal gas link, you've got to find something. All right, so now we're going to do some music and then come back with climate news. with the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. We got Stefan Krishner, Erwin Hostetter, Lauren Elizabeth Corlator, and myself. And we'll be joined by Gordon Laxer later on to talk about his uh, report. To what the, the great extent to which the uh, Canadian oil industry is, is owned by foreign companies. Owned by foreign companies. I mean, quite literally, not like... The metaphorical use of owned. Oh, I don't use owned. What are you, what are you talking about? You know, how like the kids say. You mean gamer poners absolute ownage from like 2005? Yes, exactly. Yeah, the kids from 2005. <laughs> yeah, the kids. I was using that language when I played World of Warcraft as late as 2009. Okay, still, that's dated. That's dated. <laughs> the kids listening to this were maybe born in 2009, but still. Wow, do you think we have anybody young enough? Do you think our listeners encompass that that younger oh, generation? Dallas. I mean, if you are 11 and listen to the show, let us know. I would love to know that an 11-year-old listens to the show. Generation Alpha is all up on this thing right now. But also, like, check with your parents before communicating with three random strangers on the internet. So, like, there is that. <laughs> the point is, they have contracts that they've signed. And they have not merely dribbled out uh, slang words on the internet. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> Okay, so the news. The Canada Energy Regulator is projecting that Canada will be producing more oil and gas in 2032 than it is now. And in 2050, our production will have gone down only slightly. This means that the main federal body for regulating the energy sector is under the impression that Canada will hugely miss all of our climate targets. The energy mix quotes Dale Marshall of Environmental Defense as saying that Canada is a high-cost, high-carbon oil producer. And if Canada is at, the same time, is at the same level of production it's at today, then that means that other sources of oil will be even more so and will be cooked. That's climate catastrophe. Nicole Dusick of the Pembina Institute. Pembina? Pembina? Pembina. Quote, as Canadians experience the devastating impacts of climate change, it simply cannot be overstated how important it is for CER, Canada Energy Regulator, modeling to present scenarios that assume Canada and the world act to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, or CAP, on the other hand, believes that we will actually produce more oil and gas than the report suggests. 
Julie Levin of Environmental Defense, called the report a self-fulfilling prophecy, since its predictions can help justify the very investments in fossil fuels that it prophesies will continue to rise. The University of Waterloo has released a report saying that close to 4.8 million people on Canada's coasts are at great risk from the climate crisis, from rising seas, coastal flooding, storms, and erosion. It states that the majority of Canada's coastal population are located along the east and west coasts, where sea levels are rising due to effectively irreversible climate change. The report calls for seawalls, storm barriers, and dune and wetland restoration. Uh, Last month, Canada put out a farm policy framework that apparently centralizes the climate crisis. I don't understand in what way this is being done. That's what I've stated. Maybe Stefan will embellish on this. I can't guarantee it. You come at me for saying that I'm opening with a recycled news and you decide to drop that in there? I mean, you you, can see that I didn't have anything written down on it. You, you see, you can see the notes. I have nothing written down on it. What do you want me to say? I mean, you just you just move on. And I, I, come said, back I could to have it. I could have deleted it. I could have deleted yeah. it. But you said that I should still say it. Well, I just didn't presume the ending. I just presumed you'd stop at a crisis. That's a very naive assumption. So the Toronto Star reports that there is a scientist in the Yukon, and <laughs> the Toronto Star reports there's a scientist in the Yukon and another one in Nunavik, which is northern Quebec who are working on an early warning system for melting permafrost in order to get infrastructure closed down in time as the melt causes sagging, buckling, and sinkholes in the pavement. A large portion of Siberian permafrost, which is apparently vulnerable to abrupt thaw, was recently found to be releasing nitrous oxide, or N2O, which is a greenhouse gas that is 300 times stronger than CO2 when it comes to warming the planet. More research in the relentless measuring of climate minutia has found that the Arctic will become rain-dominated rather than snow-dominated earlier than thought, possibly as early as 2050, even under 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, possibly. The rain falling on the snow can cause mass starvation of reindeer, caribou, and muskoxen because they can't dig through the layer of ice that forms over the snow in order to consume the grass underneath. Michelle McChrystal from the University of Manitoba is quoted in The Guardian as saying, The Arctic having very strong snowfall is really important for everything in that region and also for the global climate because it reflects a lot of sunlight. The Doomsday Glacier, the huge Doomsday Glacier in Antarctica, the Thwaites Glacier, is now estimated to disappear within three years. If the Doomsday Glacier goes, it could trigger other glacial collapse in Antarctica as well which is why they call it the doomsday. November was hot and dry for the American West in states such as Denver, Montana, and Colorado. A study from Cornell and Stanford has found that the production of blue hydrogen, which is a kind of hydrogen not excluded from the infrastructure bill that was recently passed in the United States, is worse for the climate than burning coal and diesel. Oliver Millman writes for Grist, quote, Blue hydrogen involves splitting gas into hydrogen and carbon dioxide and then capturing and storing the CO2 to ensure that it doesn't heat the planet. But this process involves the incidental release of methane, a potent greenhouse gas, and uses a huge amount of energy to separate and then store the carbon dioxide, some of which escapes anyway. The Guardian has recently revealed that the Biden administration 
lied when auctioning off huge parts of the Gulf of Mexico for oil and gas drilling. Directly after COP26, the Biden administration admitted in a memo that a recent court decision did not mean that it had to lease over 80 million acres of Gulf seabed to fossil fuel companies, but then it publicly claimed that it was forced to do so and proceeded with the auction. And finally, the American Legislative Exchange Council, known as ALEC, is creating more cookie-cutter legislation for state governments to adopt laws to combat the so-called woke financial institutions that are divesting from fossil fuels. The bill aims to help states fight federal laws that make businesses disclose their climate risks and to make states write lists of firms that boycott fossil fuels and to require businesses with over 10 employees and federal contracts to prove that they don't support fossil fuel boycotts. Quickly on how this plan the Canadian government has put out will, would tackle climate change. The farm a, policy. The farm policy. Basically, it comes a couple different ways. The, the first is trying to support, that, support technological adaptation. Um, this would be things like theoretical electrified, you know, tractors and things like that, and and other things of that nature, reduce greenhouse gas emissions and improve carbon sequestration, which really gets down to actually protecting and regenerating soil. If anyone has heard about regenerative agriculture, which is not directly mentioned in this part, but I'm just saying that one of the biggest ways that farming can actually tackle climate change is through regenerative soil practices and actually trying to use soil to to capture more carbon, which has really been lost in the last little bit. Um, and improving biodiversity and protecting sensitive habits. If people want a much deeper dive um, into this, they can go back to our episode from earlier this year with Darren Qualman, who is from the National Farmers Union and is sort of their lead on climate change. And he, we have a very long interview with him where he really gets into the details of different ways where of, of their report that came out earlier this year about what a carbon, uh, potentially even carbon neutral farm could look like. That's protecting um, sensitive habitats. Right. Right. You said protecting sensitive habits. Oh, sorry, no habitats. Yes. They're not protecting people's uh, little little daily routines. (laughs) No, no. You can't shake them out of those. I mean, farmers are known for their routines, but uh, that you are right. It is habitats. Okay. Uh, So I'm going to go on the rant with the Alec thing first, but uh, you probably have something far more interesting, Lauren. Um, I did just want to jump back up to the first story Dave Dave talked about, actually, uh, which was um, about the Canada Energy Regulator. And um, the Canada Ed- Energy Regulator, for folks who might not have sort of like heard that grouping of words before, is what is the body that was developed a couple of years ago, back when people may not remember it, but like um, when like the National Energy Board was being overhauled and we were rethinking how Canada like undergoes its 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 assessment. So so that's where the Canada Energy Regulator came from, and that's why the the name has only sort of started to pop up in recent years. Um, but every year they publish um, a report called the Energy Futures Report that kind of assesses as Canada's quote unquote energy future going forward. And it um, contains within it a couple different like scenarios and sort of pathways um, looking at sort of what our trajectory looks like from um, an energy use um, and therefore emissions standpoint. Um, and uh, in recent years, people have been asking increasingly for um, this energy futures report to also indicate what a 1.5 degree um, Paris compatible pathway would look like for Canada, um, especially because we saw that come out of the International Ener- 
G agency, IEA this year. Um, and, and like, that is obviously having something like that would be a really helpful tool for us. Um, because it would allow us to see sort of what, what, what a trajectory looks like for, for the country from an energy use standpoint, how we would actually get to that 1.5. Um, this was another year where, where they didn't give that to us and the energy futures report and this, and this report, um, that they provide, um, is, is giving us a sort of a pathway based on current and past practices, which in some ways is useful. I don't think anybody's saying ditch the previous model modeling system, um, because being able to look at what our trajectory is based off of current policy and current actions is helpful because if nothing else, it allows us to say, um, actually, we're not on track for 1.5. And we know that because the report that you, the government came out with indicates that we're not. Um, so that is still a useful tool, but it, <laughs> but people are still very adamant that we need that 1.5 scenario, 1.5 compatible scenario to come out as well. Um, and it was really neat that this was actually like kind of a news story over the last, I can't remember if it broke last week or, or earlier this week. Um, but it's neat that something like this is actually getting some conversation and like has some CTV and some CBC headlines behind it. Um, and there was enough hubbub that, that Jonathan Wilkinson, the minister of environment, climate, uh, environment, climate change, Canada did tweet out that going forward, he has asked the CER, um, to look into how they could achieve even more data in line with Canada, achieving net zero emissions by 2050. And it's like, cool. You could also just say they're going to do it. And it's not just like looking for even more data. It's like, no, just give us the scenario because like the CER is, is an independent body, but it's an independent body that falls underneath the mandate of ECCC. So unless the minister explicitly says, we need you to do this and develop this scenario and publish the scenario, they're not going to do it because they don't have the permission and the mandate to do it. So like, I don't know, it's kind of like, thanks for the peanuts. Jonathan, like, that's not really what we asked for you. We asked for the whole hog and you're giving us like a piglet. I don't know. That was a weird analogy. I don't know where that came from, but, um, but yeah, so that's the current state of the union. If people want to read more about it, there's plenty published. Um, there's a good story on, um, on the CBC, uh, website titled Canada's energy regulator criticized for not modeling a net zero future. And, um, and there's some good quotes from some really well-informed people in that. So, uh, yeah, would encourage folks to read more about that because it's something that we're going to need to push for, um, going forward, because unless we have this data and this scenario, it's going to be really hard to plan for the future um, effectively. Jonathan is just tippy-toeing around his buddies with a nice caressing attitude that is going to that is going to bring them into into where he wants them to be subtly, sub, semi semi subconsciously. It's not that he's not gonna, it's not that he's not going to get it done. Exactly, just, and also I misspoke. Jonathan Wilkinson is no longer ECCC minister. He is NRCAN, National Resources Canada. He's, yeah. The Minister of Natural Resources is his title. So my and apologies for confusing people. We've definitely gone over before how, you know, activist and noted uh, climate champion Stephen Goubeau is, is going to get this done. You know, like, I'm sure we've done that. Our faith in the liberal government must have come through at some point during our many episodes that he is obviously going to come in and be like, see, this would be a great moment where if he quote tweeted Wilkinson and said, we're going to do this, this is his moment. And he's not going to because, again, I'm being facetious, but it would be a moment, Gibo. Think about it. 
I still like, kind of hope that it's a dark horse. He's been doing this whole long, and then at some point he's going to go rogue. There's still such a small part of me that hopes this. I think we're all really hopeful for that. I had this really kind of like, it ended up being a bit of a heated slash bummer conversation with like one of my best friends from high school. I was hanging in with her for the night um, when I was in Toronto for work a couple of weeks ago. And she's like very much, very much the optimist. And she's like, no, like there are really awesome people in politics doing really cool stuff. It's great. I have faith in them. We just have to like give them the support they need. And it's like, that's true. It's not that there aren't great people in politics. I for one have an MPP who I'm like low-key obsessed with Joel Harden. Like if you hear this, you're happily married, (laughs) but like, you're also like, like I am here waiting for you. You're so great. And like, there's like, there's awesome people involved in politics. Laurel Collins is a fantastic MP based out of BC. Like there are really good people doing really good work. But also at the end of the day, when you get somebody, even somebody like Gibo, who like totally has, yeah, like the chops and the, and the experience and has the street cred, um, he's still part of this massive liberal machine and has to toe the party line. So like, at a certain point, it kind of doesn't matter what your, what your, what your street cred is or what your past pledges might've been. You're, you're, they call it a party line for a reason. Cause you have to tow it. It's like, that. it's, it's a cliche for a reason. Cause it's in practice, what effectively happens when somebody chooses to join a big behemoth party. And we can also see that in practice with like the nonsense that's going down with in BC with the NDP. They're a party that came in pledging that things were going to be different. They're a party that people voted in because they thought things were going to be different because they align themselves with a certain sort of leftist politics. And then that party gets in power. And of course they don't behave any differently because now they're beholden to this system and they have to uphold it in order to maintain the modicum of power that they have. So it's, I don't know why, I don't know how I got into this tangent, but it's a a bummer. And Gibo, we're, we're still, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm rooting for you, but like, I'm, I don't know. You could still win us over. What what could he do though? I understand what he would do. What could he do? To, To win you over. What would he do? I mean, he could call a press conference tomorrow and he could say, you know what? You're right. TMX was a stupid purchase and I'm not going to invest any more time and money into it. And like, obviously that is not going to happen. But how cool would that be? He has the power to shut down TMX? I don't know. Uh, he probably doesn't. Um, but I do think that he could... I think we did a show previously where we decided what it would need. If, if he just came out and was like, look, we're going to do a just transition. Uh, we're going to... It's going to include these sets of things. And yes, we're going to stop trying to build TMX because there's two versions of, of the way this goes down. Either he comes out and says all these things and is fired immediately, or he, he comes out and is, you know, and actually, you know, has a plan to move things forward. Either one, I think he at least wins people over from a standpoint of, okay, you haven't sold out. You know, whether or not you're successful in your actions, you know, different question. Something I learned that's this is a little bit of like insider. It's not even insider goss. It's just something that I learned recently. Um, and it's the same across all minister uh, min- ministries from what I understand. Um, a minister's chief of staff who has a lot of power within the structure of that ministry and, and determines the path forward for a lot of things and, and what the work program looks like um, isn't actually hired and appointed by the minister themselves, the the ministry chief of staff works for PMO, um, works for the prime minister's office, which I think is fascinating because it means that like, although he's appointed this person as minister, whether it's Gibo, whether it's Wilkinson, whether it's whoever, um, there's still a person very high up in that ministry who's actually working for the prime minister and isn't, anyway, 
I thought that was interesting. No, yeah. and, and it has a lot of implications oh, because sure. it means that, that, the minister, that the prime minister gets to kind of puppeteer things a little bit more than I think maybe we would like to imagine. Very quickly, this woke capital, woke financial institutions bill that uh, that the American Legislative Exchange Council, which we've talked about previously on the show before, basically they write bills, hand them to Republican lawmakers, and they get basically rubber stamped. There have been times when ALEC bills have been passed literally with their name still on it as the writers of the bill. Like, often they are just rubber stamping. Or with another things. state's name on it. Because yeah. they're, just, they're just being applied across state uh from state by state the exact same wording yeah and this is draconian to the next level what's amazing about this is the quote-unquote free market is now the moment you decide that maybe the free market won't want to invest in in something that they've decided they are kind of culturally connected to which is what's so confusing about this that they are passing bills to directly restrict the free market to to say that you cannot receive money if you are going to make your own financial calls and decide not to do this. It is so unbelievable that they are trying to make sure that no business over 10 employees won't support fossil fuel boycotts. If if businesses are people and people have free speech, which y'all made true, I'm not saying I'm supporting it, but the, this was a move by the conservative movement in the States to make businesses people then how on earth can you demand that they don't do this? It seems like such a direct violation of multiple different statutes of the Constitution. And anyways, it's baffling and I'm not happy about it. Lauren. Stefan, you are too old and too wise to expect any sort of like logical coherence from, <laughs> from the right. But I, yes, you are correct. Right. I do agree, of course. I mean, that's right. Bananas. Well, with that... We will go to someone who's not bananas, which is Gordon Laxer, right after this music break. Greasy from your dead skin. Too greasy to fall off your neck. Let's go. Let's go, I said to the fields. Golden machines, those massive fuckers. Lubricated tubes, endless in years. You know what I'm talking about? Cradling of vegetables that are sliding down the cylinders. You know, hydraulic surging of the ground. Each crop, each batch, each season. Gras grown in a laboratory. Tastes good, doesn't it? Tastes good, doesn't it? Yeah. They look at us right here like fucking on these fake black leather couches. Where are the goddamn cows? Not even allowed to see the world. The world. Granics from a terraform, re-terraform. We cut up the trees and the rocks, get the black oil in. You think of the or think, but think the organisms. The organisms out there. They're coiled little spines pouncing. Rottling, gobbling up the hides and the underbellies of the weaklings in the sun, the shining sun. Look at us, house cats, laughing up each other's overdosed eyes, our butter knife minds, fit only for the cutting of the butter smoke, black against that unseeable sky. The leopards, the jaguars, the pumas, and the lynxes out there gobbling. What? You'd rather this staring at each other's conniving minds and couches. What an anomaly generation. Get the fuck up off this shit. I'm standing, son. Going out. Okay. Golden machine fields. And beyond that? Yeah. Beyond that? Yeah. The wilderness. The Yakas. Dandavas. Bandas and the Nagas. You know what those are? You know? Oh, yeah. I'll stomp you. 
stop your weakling warfare naked body until you are something else. Me, I'm a gorilla. I have no city, brother. I am muscular. I'm a gorilla. What? My tendons are filled with hemoglobin and fatty acids, and I am healthy. This black butter of the living room smoke. Stop looking like that. Stop looking. Stop. I know. I know, I know, I know, I'm going to the outskirts. Look, stop looking at me. Stop looking. I'm going out. No, no. I'm going out to the goblin. I'm going out to the goblin. I'm going out to the goblin. I'm going out to the Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, no, hold on. I'm going. I'm going out. I'm going out. What? What? Fuck you. You. Hello, you found us. Thank you so much for joining us. And also, thank you for joining us. Gordon Laxer, the author of Posing as Canadian, How Big Foreign Oil Captures the Canadian Energy and Climate Policy, who is also the founding director of the Parkland Institute at the University of Alberta. Thank you so much for joining us, Gordon. Great to be here. Wonderful to have you. And so let's start first, actually, with that last piece. Can you tell us what the Parkland Institute is? Well, the Parkland Institute was set up in the mid-90s when Ralph Klein was uh, Premier of Alberta, and there was no opposition to any of the policies coming out of Alberta. So it's a public policy institute, very much like the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, except it's at the University of Alberta. But it's a, a province-wide, Alberta-wide institute that does research for the common good. And so it does a whole range of issues Environment's one of them, not the only one, energy, health policy, all of the different kinds of policies. And it isn't funded by the university. It's funded, it's a nonprofit within the university. It's a very unique kind of voice, but it is widely respected within Alberta. Awesome. And I'm sure that was part of the reason why you were asked to doctor this report, because the conversation around politics uh, and oil politics especially really does focus in on Alberta. And so I'm curious if you can talk about how did this report come to be? You know, it was co-published by the Kansas Canadians, as well as the CPA of Saskatchewan and BC offices. And so clearly there's a sort of a, a coming together of folks, but perhaps you can tell us the story of how this report came to be. Yes. Well, in the Alberta election, uh, April of uh, 2019, that Jason Kenney's United Conservative Party won. The, he promised in the election that he would investigate the foreign funding of environmentalists who are trying to landlock Alberta oil, as he put it, and that he was going to see if there's anything illegal going on. He set up a war room, as he called it, $30 million a year. And he set up a public inquiry that was going to look into this and find out all the, follow the money trail. And he was asked, uh, Kenny, two months before he promised this in the election, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, CAP, which is... The, the voice is the apex voice for big oil in Canada. They charged that there was all this, this foreign funding of environmentalists that were stopping pipelines and would, there was this anti-Alberta campaign. And shortly after Jason Kenney took up what the big foreign oils call, 
And then he promised that uh, he would do this if his government was elected. It was. The UCP, United Conservative Party, defeated the NDP, Rachel Notley's NDP, in that election. And they did set up um, a public inquiry. So they, actually, the results of the public, it was not really a public inquiry because they had no hearings. It was a Google search, basically, very peculiar. So they found a forensic accountant to head this who had uh, connections to the UCP, United Conservative Party. Anyways, they found that there was only a pittance of money. The amount of money that was coming in, foreign funds to fund the uh, campaigns by environmentalists to try and block Alberta oil. And the reason the environmentalists were doing that was because the tar sands and, and the, the production of oil and gas is the single biggest source of emissions in Canada. It's bigger than all forms of transportation. It's production of oil, mainly for export. Anyways, but there was very little foreign funding coming in. In fact, the annual flow of funds, foreign funds coming in, was less than the cost of the public inquiry itself. So you, do you have a public inquiry that, to look at this big problem? Okay. So we decided, let's you know, see if there is another source of foreign funding. And we looked at the oil companies. And the interesting thing about oil in Canada, the government meets with them all the time, whether it's the Alberta government or the, uh, the federal government. They are in perpetual meeting with the, foreign uh, the oil industry. Well, guess what? The oil industry is it's overwhelmingly foreign owned in fact there is no major canadian oil company since petro canada was taken over by suncor in 2009. so the canadian association of petroleum producers this apex organization for big oil they get 97 percent of their funding from foreign owned oil companies now if you're foreign owned that you're foreign funded right so i mean it's unbelievable that they would bring up this idea about foreign funding and saying this is a terrible thing when in fact they are so overwhelmingly foreign funded and directed the, the cap is basically the little brother of the American Petroleum Institute, API, which represents all this pretty well the same oil companies. And they certainly have no, you know, they're not Canadian oriented, but they have called the environmentalist traitors to Canada. They wave the maple leaf. They pretend they're Canadian and they meet with the, the, the government all the time. And so we wanted to go into that. And so I actually did some research on Bloomberg terminals. You can go in and you find out who owns the companies and where their residence is. So we went into all of the companies on the the board of governors of CAP. And we found that 77% of the corporations on the board are from corporations which are either 100% foreign-owned or majority foreign-owned. So that's three quarters. And they were the big companies. And we found that 97% of the oil that's actually produced by, by the corporations on the on CAP's board, foreign-owned, 97%. And that matters because the fees that, that uh, CAP gets from its members is based on the oil production. So the biggest ones, Canadian Natural Resources and Suncor and all of these, they pay way more than little the, the small Canadian companies. And so 97% of the funding of CAP, I mean, CAP, we don't know exactly because CAP refuses to make its uh, budget and revenue public. But we do know 
that they say that the bigger the production, the more, the higher the fees for the oil company. So it's, it's outlandish that these big foreign oil is intervening in Canadian elections and Canadian debates and pretending they're Canadian. First of all, they got that name, Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, and none of them are Canadian, at least of the big ones. And they spend big in elections. There's, for example, they have the cap intervenes as a third party, a, a registered third party, which allows it to spend a million dollars in the pre-election period and half a million dollars in the election period. They do a lot of media advertising. They set up fake grassroots groups like Canada's Energy Citizens, where they got that from. In the United States, they have a group called Energy Citizens, which the oil companies finance. And so CAP in Canada just stuck the word Canadian in front of it, and they're the Canada's Energy Citizens. And so this group was very active on the social media. It's got over a quarter of a million uh, followers and likes and all of those kind of things. And they pretend they're Canadian and they, they're always on the media when everybody talks about climate, they will have a counter thing. Anybody criticizes the oil companies. So the cap intervenes and then they have meetings, a number of, so there was um, in, in between 2011 and 2018, and this overlaps both the Harper government and the Trudeau government. There were 11,000 meetings between the oil, oil industry and the federal government officials. And so it was both the same with the Harper government, and the Trudeau government. So this is a meeting like once a day that the, the oil is, so they're meeting perpetually. They also, when COVID hit, you know, most of us had to work at, at home or a lot of us did. Well, the cap didn't stop us lobbying. They uh, in fact set up a secretive group with the federal government called Follow the Path. And so CAP was there and four big oil companies, all of them foreign owned, either totally foreign owned or majority foreign owned. They were advising the government and they made a whole bunch of demands and asks. And a lot of them were there. So they were more subsidized, more highly subsidized. They didn't have to pay to clean up the mess that they've left in Alberta, the liabilities, environmental liabilities, orphan wells that were just an abandoned wells that are not operating anymore. So the federal government picked up the, the bill. So this is at least part of the bill. And they haven't cleaned up most of this stuff, but it is the public and the taxpayers who picked up the cost of cleaning up these uh, wells at Big Oil. And Big Oil is making such huge profits. There's another study that I did, a really companion study that's going to come out soon, which shows big foreign oil takes $23 billion a year in profits out of Canada, doesn't even touch down in the country. And it, Alberta gets very little of it. Canada gets very little of it. And the oil industry keeps talking about we are central to the Canadian economy. The Canadian economy wouldn't do well. Well, guess what? The oil industry employs so few people. It employs fewer than 1% of all the workers in Canada. And they brag, the oil companies brag about what they call demanding the industry. So there's so, so few workers, it takes $2 million investment in the, oil, in the oil industry to produce one job. In manufacturing, you get 20 jobs for that million. If you're in healthcare, you get over 20 jobs. 
So there are so few jobs so that they can't really justify in terms of well, we're employing all these people. They're laying off so many people, even while they increase their production and increase their emissions. And so the, and it's interesting that the showing their influence, the, the Trudeau government is bringing in a carbon tax, all these measures to reduce demand for oil. What they don't do is there's no cap on the production of oil, where that is the biggest source of emissions. So you can see the influence of big oil. And it is, you know, these people are such hypocrites to uh, pretend that they're Canadian. They're not in here for the good of Canada. They are here to make a buck and they're going to leave or go anywhere else where they can make it when if they can make more somewhere else. So the, what the report is, is really goes into those issues. Yeah, as we all apparently know, corporations are inherently patriotic, and it's only people who are asking for the country to be better that are could possibly be in any ways, you know, against Canada. But uh, joking aside, so you've done a great job there of laying out, I think, both the big revelations of this report and the playbook that CAP uses to try to influence information. I'm curious if we can move to what are your recommendations or how we can reduce the impact or influence of, of these oil companies? Well, yes, there, there is something we can do. In, in the 2016 uh, US presidential election, there was a lot of talk about Russian interference. And I support the idea that every uh, country, every democratic jurisdiction, the people, the citizens should be able to determine their own future without foreign funded, especially big corporate foreign funded influence. And it isn't just uh, foreign governments that interfere in other people's elections. Uh, foreign corporations do it at a big scale. And the oil industry has been doing this around the world for a very long time. So in 2018, the, the, the Canadian government, this was in the really response to the talk about Russian meddling in the American election. They changed, they modernized the Canadian Election Act. And they said that foreign entities must not spend in Canadian elections. So they banned it, but they left a loophole a mile wide. So what they did is so a foreign entity and they say corporations, yes, foreign corporations are not allowed to intervene in Canadian elections, but they define foreign corporations as those that have headquarters abroad. But if they put the headquarters in Calgary, and a lot of them do. There's uh, the example of Harvest Energy, which is uh, owned by a Korean oil company, 100%. It's got its headquarters in Calgary. They're considered a Canadian company. There's also all of these companies. It is just insane that they're considered Canadian. So what the first recommendation is to say that we should define what a foreign corporation is, what foreign funding is, and ban those corporations from interfering in Canadian elections. So I've got a thresholds about what is a foreign corporation. Well, maybe I'll go into that. So if it's 5% owned by a foreign government, if it's 20% foreign owned by a foreign owner or 50% aggregate foreign ownership, that is a foreign owned, foreign funded corporation and should be banned. Now I get these figures, actually, there's a momentum growing in the United States to ban foreign funded corporations, foreign influence corporations from intervening in American elections. And just this week, there is going to be a bill moved by a congressman from Maryland to ban the foreign funded, foreign influence corporations from meddling in American elections. 
And I'm in touch with uh, researchers and people working on that. So I, I'm introducing this idea into Canada. We haven't ha not had this debate in Canada. It's a glaring loophole in the act. It's a longstanding policy of foreign corporations coming into Canada, pretending they're Canadian, setting up shop here, hiring maybe some Canadian managers, but still being controlled and financed from outside. That's, I'm trying to start the debate in Canada and contact MPs and political parties and also just to get a, a general awareness of this so that it becomes an issue. And it's tied to climate because we're in a climate emergency now. We know we have to act quickly. And who is blocking the action? Well, big foreign oil is one of the major blocks. I mean, Canada is doing pathetically if you compare us to other G7 countries. So if you look at, uh, you go back to 1990, the first international conference on climate change was in Rio in 1992. All these countries said they pledged we will cut emissions compared to a 1990 level. The United States and Japan, they're at the same level as 1990. The European Union is down 25% from 1990. Britain's is down over 40%, the United Kingdom. Canada's up 21% from its 1990 level. So it is, and why? It isn't that Canadians drive in a peculiar way or whatever. It's because we are this oil producing oil exporting country and the oil we produce is very dirty oil it produces more emissions and has of course huge local environmental impacts and it, it has more emissions because you got to separate all the sand from the oil and we are actually burning one-third of our natural gas in canada to produce this dirty oil and of course there's a lot of emissions come from that natural gas that we burn so it is more on a per barrel basis than most countries who produce oil. So that idea that this is dirty oil is absolutely correct. And we have an obligation in this country. You know, what gives us the right in Canada? We have less than one half of 1% of the world's population. We produce uh, over one and a half percent of all the world's emissions. That's more than three times our per capita level. What gives us the right to pollute the common world atmosphere more than anybody else. We don't have that. We should not have that right. Yeah, for sure. And how do we manage that beyond actually finding a way to tackle the influence and really find a way to, you mentioned the report, you know, just transition away from this work to protect the oil workers, you know, and the people whose jobs are attached to this, but also, as you mentioned, there are shockingly few people working in oil. It is, I remember when I did some digging a couple of years ago, same thing. And you look at the percentage of people who work in say retail compared, and it's just astronomical when no one ever, it's not a, I'm sure that I know there is a retail lobby, but it's, it's never talked about the same way. It's never wrapped in the same nationalism that we experience. Yeah. Yes. And you know, I look, I don't really care much what happens to the oil companies in their future. I do care what happens to the oil workers in their communities. These people are trying to make a living. They got mortgages and financial obligations like anybody else does pressures. So we have to have a plan so that those communities and those workers can move on to other things. It doesn't do Alberta and Albertans any favors to try and maintain this industry. By the middle of the 21st century, the oil industry is going to be history. And so Albertans have to move on to another economy. They're, Albertans are very well educated and they can, and so what we need are programs to make sure 
that people are taken care of so that they can get retraining, so that they can get funded while they're retraining, so the governments go in and help to um, uh, develop other industries on other kinds of work. There's a precedent for this. Alberta has been getting off coal fire and elect electricity generation. And the federal government went into the different communities and said to coal, these coal producing communities and said, what should we do? What should your future be? This is the kind of thing that should be done with, with the oil workers. For sure. I don't want to take too much of your time because I've already taken a little more of it than we uh, anticipated. So I apologize about that. But I do want to get to one more question because I do think it's important and a nice grounding question for those who might be listening, which is obviously you've thought a lot about climate change and also transition to transit, what transition looks like. And there's a whole bunch of anxiety, I think, based on not just climate change, which is very huge, but also just the fact that the huge changes required in our world, even to combat climate change. All of this, I think, is wrapped up into a similar uh, basis of unknowing about a future. And so how do you manage your climate anxiety or your anxiety for the future? I tend to be a bit of an optimist. Maybe I don't know how well grounded that is, but the way I deal with my own anxiety is to get out there and work really hard to change Canadian policies and so that we actually tackle this stuff. But I'm also reminded my parents lived through the Great Depression and the Second World War. And I think of my parents facing the possibility of uh, Nazi Germany taking over the world. They had to confront this, and then it, it was a, a terrifying thing. And they got through it. They went in and they stepped up. That whole generation stepped up and did what work was necessary. And I just, I have faith that I think we can do that now. I really have faith in, especially the young, the people that uh, Greta Thunberg and others of Extinction Rebellion, all those kinds of things that are going on. I do think that we can push governments to actually, to take real action. We haven't done it. You know, governments have not really had their foot put to the fire, but I think it, it, it was increasing momentum to do that. I have faith in that. So yeah, it's always good to be reminded that there were terrifying things in the past too, that we had to battle in some ways. Well, how can folks find this report and learn more about it? Well, you could go to my own uh, website, uh, www.gordonlaxer.com. You can go into the Council of Canadians website, just click Council of Canadians and look up the, the report. So it's called Posing as Canadian, How Big Foreign Oil Blocks Canadian Climate Action. So I think you could find it that way. Amazing. Well, I'll give you a chance for a, a last final thought in half a second. But before I do that, thank you so much, Gordon Laxer author of Posing as Canadian, How Big Foreign Oil Captures Canadian Energy and Climate Policy, and also the founding director of the Parkland Institute at the University of Alberta. And so, Gordon, we have a, a reach, send me across Canada with our syndicate partners. Imagining yourself speaking to the general listeners, if you had one thought to convey to them, what would it be? Well, optimism that we can, we can do this. We can deal with climate change and we can actually make this a better country as we deal with the transition. Yes, yeah, so I have faith that that's in Canada's future. <laughs>